today, in the second of two episodes, I continue my conversation with Rockman, Rock Mangozi. In this discussion, we discuss how talking to academics can be a struggle, and perhaps why that is the case, what it means to be a part of a community, and the weight that may or may not come along with it, how we structure moral codes without religious belief, and we end with a way of viewing the value of currency and how we prioritize the values in our lives. But perhaps the most enjoyable part of this conversation for me was our discussion of mercy and the importance that mercy has to play in our relationships with others, but also in our relationship with ourselves. I hope you also find this conversation enjoyable. Here is part two with Rock. The other thing, um, particularly as we get to, you know, conflicts between you know ethnicities and religions and, and, and different things and i always remind people we don't know each other right mm-hmm. we see people on tv we see people on social media and in the news but you know how many close personal friends do you have you know if you're a christian how many friends do you have that are jewish or muslim or atheist or how many friends that you know do you have that are you know gay or you know, or black or Asian or whatever. We don't know these people, Mm -hmm. but we think that, oh, we all speak English. So we're all speaking the same language. And it's like, no, there are dozens of subcultures. There are, you know, dozens upon dozens of sub subcultures. Um, I say that there are seven and a half billion unique languages on this planet. And if you want to get along with any individual, one of them, one person, you need to learn their language, right? We always hear communication is 90% body, you know, not what you speak. So you have to do the work to learn that language. Well, so that, that's one of those interesting things. Um, the, uh, so I'm a white guy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you can tell, um, and, you know, if the paint gets too white, I bleed into it. Um, <laughs> but like um, my sister is a, a lesbian. My brother mm-hmm. is uh, was married to a, a black woman. So my nephews are all biracial. Mm-hmm. Um, the two most influential people in my formation have been Jewish. And I was raised as a, you know, nice little Christian boy in the Midwest. Right. Looking at you'd have no idea. Right. And why should you, but, but you're going to imprint certain things on, and there's a lot of this that happens um, Mm -hmm. in the sort of, you know, what experience could you possibly have? Well, I can't live any of those. I can only live mine. Right. Right. Same with yours. No one can ever, that's that phrase lived experience is always, I don't, I don't know that there is a different one. But (laughs) that's one of those things that academics come up with is like, what are you talking about? You're just making it worse. Yeah. It's like, (laughs) just, just say your life, man. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Were you alive? Um, Right. And, but what, uh, but what you end up doing, and I think this is where you and I um, resonate so much is I don't presume to know anything about the experience. Like I Mm. would never tell someone, no, you didn't experience that thing. Because how, mm-hmm. how in God's name would I possibly be able to justify that? What arrogance right. on my part. Right. But on the flip side, I would want the same thing reciprocated. You can't tell mm-hmm. me that I don't also have these just because of, you know, whatever phenotype or, you know, genitals or whatever nonsense. Right. That, because, uh, and I think it's probably because I consider that stuff to be the least interesting parts of me. So I presume mm-hmm. that they're the least interesting parts of you. Yeah. And uh, which is why I tend not to talk too much about any of it because I find them boring. Yeah. And and I, that's why I'm, you know, I, I fall outside of the social science paradigm because that's the rage, man. And 
and not in terms of, I mean, anger too, but it's the yeah, most yeah. popular hot button thing. And I find it so dreadfully boring because you're way more interesting than that. Because I think I, I want to think that I am too, you know, we'll see. Right. But um, it's, I, it's, it's one of those things. Um, it was a, it was a bit of a, I know everyone feels, you know, as they growing up, they feel like they're on an island that no one understands them. Um, everyone feels that way to an extent. Yeah. Um, some of us feel that way and there's a little bit extra. I've always been very, it wasn't just an adolescent thing. It was from the very beginning. I've mm -hmm. always had a very visceral um, mistrust of, of other people. Um, as I was saying earlier, callback, um, humans are dangerous, right? And then growing up in the environment, it's like the environment that I was growing up in, but then also there are things that I've uncovered about my personality. I am viscerally sort of don't really like people that much, or I did, you know, growing up. Mm -hmm. And so even though I grew up in, um, you know, in a black neighborhood and surrounded by, you know, a lot of black people, and then, you know, it became, you know, you know, mixed it, whatever. Um, that wasn't, as some people say they feel comfortable with their own kind. It's like, no, if it's not me, <laughs> as the solitary individual, I feel slightly less comfortable. And the less familiar I am with you, the more uncomfortable I, I become. Yep. So everyone in the world is a stranger to me. I don't presume anything. Um, and while that in my mind made me a little bit weird. Nah, not just in my mind, people would tell me I was a little bit weird as a kid um, in, in, in certain ways, in very, in, in ways that people might even, you know, say from the Twitter experience of me, um, it's the same thing. Um, in that there was freedom in that it allowed me to treat everyone that I, I, I come in contact with as a unique palette I make almost I mean I don't want to say I'm just you you know you know this unique yeah, right, I right, have right. obviously you're always going to imprint certain things and make certain assumptions sure but still there's always been a uh, an openness to say okay what do you have to present to me uh because in my mind I'm like okay there is danger here I need to make sure that you don't present a danger so I'm I'm open to what it, what unique experience you're going to present to me. And 90, 90% of the time, it's not danger at all. People are just going about their business. Um, and you're like, oh, okay, I can figure out a way to, to, to get in there and, you know, make a connection. Well, it's, it, this is one of those interesting, what I, one of the things I, I enjoy most about just talking to people, especially I love me some academics. I mean, cause mm -hmm. sort of, but they, um, there's always a, I found my thing. And so I want to find it and like, like a hound, like I want to find it and get it and get at it. What I yeah. like, and this is something that I, I found more difficult as I went and got higher, you know, more degrees and, you know, all the rest of the crap that went with it. Mm -hmm. You forget how to talk to people that don't have that stuff. Yeah. And what's really, what I really enjoy is when I can have a conversation with someone and like the example you just brought up, is a perfect illustration of uh, Thomas Hobbes' perception of human nature, and mm -hmm. that it's um, that people are inherently sort of violent. The life is brutish and nasty and short. This is what he says yeah. in the state of nature. Yeah, no, I remember that one. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and that he, that we make government as a cage for ourselves mm -hmm. uh, to you know to protect us from other people. 
mm-hmm. and that that is really part of the um, the liberalism, not like uh, you know Biden or Bernie Sanders, sure. not that kind, but the school of right. liberalism that yeah. um, that it's about fundamentally about safe safety. It's you're mm-hmm. afraid, so you want to be made safe. Mm-hmm. What's what's awesome? I really enjoy about um, having conversations with people outside of that realm, especially people who study it is the way in which those conclusions can come to you by just being alive. Um, you can come to those conclusions as a seven or eight year old. Now, can you explain all the stuff? No, but you don't necessarily right. need to, to mm-hmm. be able to talk about it. Yeah. And this is actually fundamental how I approach my teaching too. Yeah. You know, what, what is that that you're bringing in and then how can I build on it or apply it in something else or whatever. And mm-hmm. um, that, that, but what it also does, the, the liberalism piece that's interesting to me, and it's one of those tensions that I, I have in my own thinking, but also one of them that I've tried to identify. If you treat everyone as an individual, it's very lonely, right? And it runs counter to that need to be included in a community. And yet the way in which we talk about all of these various uh, social tensions or cultural fissure points or however we want to go about it. It's, mm-hmm. and we do this a lot in race, the black community or mm-hmm. um, the Latin community, whatever mm-hmm. the, the new word is for that or whatever. Um, yeah. There's an inherent presumption that as you participate in whatever that category is, mm-hmm. you are part of that thing. Mm-hmm. But it, uh, the way in which you approach individuals as sort of blank states, almost not fully, but as new experiences, yeah. we could say, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Unfilled in canvases. Yeah. That really runs counter to the idea of being able to talk about a community. Yeah. Um, so now you're, you know, we're going to get into my id here. Um, <laughs> I, there's, I've always had, it's getting better now. Right. But I've, I've, for the longest part, I've had a, um, I've never really felt a part of a community. Right. Um, I know what I look like. I know what my culture is and I'm very proud of my culture. Um, you know, and I, I love it. And um, I never want to be, I'm glad that I had the experience. I never want to be anything but black in America. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are certain, when I wake up in the morning, that's not what I think about. When I wake up in the morning, I think about me. And I happen to be extremely selfish in that way, right? And so again, this is like one of those defects. And so as I see, you know, certain things, even now, you know, I've solved a lot of these internal issues and cleared my mind whatever but even now when certain things are happening within the black community um the quote-unquote black community i don't have anything to say i don't have anything to add because it does not resonate with me even though i am black even though it is supposedly about the black community this thing doesn't resonate with me and so i'm like nah so like for instance there's this whole there was this whole thing that like you know that popped up was it like last week of you know that was supposedly pitting black men against black women and you know who was voting for whom and who was really you know um upholding and and trying to support 
this thing called the black community. And it's like, I will not be participating in any of that, right? At all, because I know that, and that is a conversation that that goes on within the black community, the relationship between, you know, men and women, just like, you know, feminism and, 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 and patriarchy, you know, within the mainstream, exact same thing. Um, but that's not what my focus is. That's not what I care about because it doesn't resonate with me as an individual. And so as far as I'm concerned, I, you know, it might be a black community thing, but I have no interest and I opt out. I'm just not a part of it. And I know there are aspects of me, well, there are, there are various topics that um, I do that with all the time. And it does rub some black people the wrong way because I'm like, that does not mean anything to me. Even though I am black, even though um, black people are talking about it, it's like, it doesn't resonate with me until I'm out. Um, and it, it is lonely. There is a lot of loneliness when you don't feel a part of a community and you have to build it one piece at a time. Mm -hmm. And there's a large part, large sections of my life where I felt very lonely. Um, again, I'm 44 now and I've had a long time to work on it. And I think I've kind of, I kind of got it got it down, but it is very lonely. Um, it is a lot of hard work. And so I understand that not everyone has the time or wherewithal to do that. And so they buy into sort of the prepackage of life, right? This is my, you know, this is my racial identity. And so 99% of this, that's me, or this is my gender identity. And so whatever, I'm going to stand for that. And, and, and that's it. Whereas I've always been a la carte about life because I told my mother this once, I didn't ask to be born. Um, she slapped me. Um, and that's a whole other story, but, but it did not make it not true. I didn't ask to be here right? I didn't ask to be born in this particular body. I didn't ask to be born in this country. I didn't ask for a lot of this stuff. And so while I appreciate it and I appreciate how I can use it and how it's informed this life of mine, um, because I didn't choose it, I get to then choose which parts I actually want and which parts I don't. Because at the end of all of this, I'm dying by myself. So <laughs> and so the way that you, you've put that there is so um, uh, insightful. Well, I, I have a, I don't know, a quip is the wrong phrase, but I have a, a little a quip is fine. Um, what's more important is your first name than your last name. Mm -hmm. Because the first name is the thing that identifies you as an individual where right. the other one is a family association, which connects mm -hmm. to a tribe going, you know, all the way yes, back. Exactly. And yeah. um, so we, we prioritize first names and we do that purposefully because we do mm -hmm. want individuals to conceive of themselves as this way. Right. Though we have perhaps reached a saturation point where uh, uh, because of that loneliness factor, when, when you have other things that were outside of it for a long time, you know, religion served that as the primary function for people where it wasn't I always hated religion. Well, where it wasn't the family association, it was uh, the yeah. next sort of thing. So if it wasn't that it was a bowling team or it was, you know, mm -hmm. insert whatever the thing, yeah. the voluntary association that gave you meaning that wasn't from your yeah. family. Yeah. And those things have all really been stripped away. And, and see, it's funny because I never cared about those things. I grew up in a very religious family. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and I always sort of chafed against it because they, they try to explain too much. And when you try to explain too much, you stretch too thin. I'm like, no, I see that. I see the holes in that. And yeah. so, um, so when people say, yeah, we're not as religious anymore. I'm like, yeah, I don't, who needed that? You know, or, you know, we can't go out anymore because of COVID and everything. And I'm kind of like, and this is where I, I can sometimes be a jerk is where I'm like, who really needs that? Because I know I don't need that to the degree that the average person does. And I have to modulate that a little bit more. My my mother-in-law is, um, she's extroverted, but she's a, uh, she can't sit at home. Like that's Mm. the best way. So uh, when they were like under the more extensive lockdown, it was, Mm -hmm. we got to go out and walk three miles a day or something. I can't stay at home. I've got to go out. And as soon as she could, it was just to be out. I think it's to be out in the noise. And mm. sort of to go, um, because you've habituated yourself to it, breaking the habit, I think, is the biggest beef there. No, I think the question on, on have we become less religious, I think really has two concerns. If you're a religious person, you care about it because you're you know trying to keep people from going to hell and all this kind of stuff, or whatever the version of it is. But right. then there's also the political or the social. I, th- mm. I don't like using the word political. Um, uh, mm-hmm. Dr. Graham, I, I follow him on Twitter, and he does this too. And it's, it, this isn't to call him out on it. It's, this is a, right. a part of it. We use the word political when we mean partisan. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, this person is showing their partisanship. Oh, they're being political. Well, yes. The, the more we do that, the more we corrupt the idea that there is a shared political life together. Because um, mm-hmm. you can have different themes on the same or different variations of the same theme. Those are partisan yeah. variants. But to have the same music, that's the political stuff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I think in that sense, that's what I mean when I'm saying political here. Yeah. What is the replacement for those smaller subsets of voluntary associations that keep everyone from, well, the clearest example on this, I think is, well, the, the, the crack epidemic that rages through in the 90s and now the opioid mm-hmm. epidemic that's raging through now, hitting mm-hmm. different communities, but having it almost exact same causes and exact same effects. Yeah. And uh, except for white people aren't going to jail for it. That's a difference. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. Th- so we can't completely glaze over it completely. But yeah. the uh, the causes are still that sort of alienation. Uh, Durkheim calls this anime, if I remember my sociology correctly. You you feel completely isolated from everything. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There's no there's no mooring. There's no way of guiding through the water, and uh, people you know let themselves go under. And what do you do to replace that? That could have been, we were talking earlier, here's my callback here. That could have been something that the internet provided. And for some people, it certainly has like the online gaming people. I think that's Mm -hmm. a pretty good stand in for that. Um, But there's something that's not as resonant and I don't know why. Yeah. So here, here's the weird thing. Um, My mother's Christian and my father's a Muslim. So Mm -hmm. I grew up with, with both traditions and as soon as I was old enough, I left them both behind. Um, so I'm not very religious, but I do have a concept of God or just this, whatever the organizing principle in the universe. From physics, you'll get one answer. From religion, you'll get another answer. Um, and this is where I become agnostic. I don't really give a shit about what it is. It's... 
I'm I'm not going to know because it's actually outside of my, it's outside of our our, our capacity to know. Yeah. So I don't worry about that. Um, so I don't, you know, I don't have a particular religious affiliation, but I do have a very deep sense of let's say spirituality, for lack of a better word. Right. I don't like organizations and I don't like other people's rules. But if you actually dissected my life, it is very regimented and it's very rule based in a lot of ways. Um, and so people say, well, Rock, you don't go to church and you don't belong to organizations and you don't really care about the Constitution in the way that, you know, the average person does. You don't care about any of these things, but you're very, you know, deep and, 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 you know, in the sentiment of, of all of these things. And for me, it's a, it's, it's a bit of a shortcut. It's like, okay, well, what are we trying systems? What are we trying to do? What are we trying to accomplish? We want people to be, you know, sensible and measured and kind and all of these different things. So I'm like, okay, well, if I can do all of those things, does that mean I don't have to go to church? You know? Let's just skip to the end. It's like, if I'm going to, and listen, I went to black churches and my mother was the the, the minister of music. So I was there all day. People oh, yeah. say that they were there all day. It's like, yeah. no, I was really there all day because <laughs> we were the people putting on the show. Um, and so it's like, <laughs> it's like, okay. So wait, if I can just do all of the stuff that I'm supposed to do and be the type of person I'm supposed to, can I skip the three hours of going to sit in church? You know, and my mother was like, hell no, get in the car, we're going right. to church. Going to but church. when I was old enough, I expanded upon that. I don't need the church. I don't need these organizations to compel me or give me all of these rules to do the quote unquote right thing, right? I'm going to take the onus upon myself to figure out exactly what I need to do in order to meet my goals. Again, it's going back to the fact that not being a part of that community and having to build it all, you know, this community by individuals. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of responsibility. It's a lot of follow through. But if you aren't afraid of the work, you can do it and you can toss out all that other stuff, um, you know, to the side. And so what I think has happened within society as we've moved away from religion because religion is failing in its mission. Um, you know, we can talk about that or not talk about that. And then, and as other pillars and institutions and norms within society has um, been pulled away, the gatekeepers have been removed. People haven't conversely um, done the work to um, fill that space in with their own responsibility and their their own accountability it's like the thing about the internet and that's very very interesting is that it has <clears throat> we're going to do a couple of callbacks here mm -hmm. the internet has democratized <laughs> yeah right very good society right there are no yes. more gatekeepers there are no more people keeping the norms um and that's freedom but in freedom comes you know responsibility and accountability, which is the hardest lesson to teach a child. I know from firsthand experience, um, teaching responsibility and, and accountability is that that is the price of your freedom. That is the price for being able to do whatever it is that you want to do. 
is the maturity to understand that you actually don't want to do everything that it is that you want to do because doing everything that you want to do will basically lead you to having sex and eating yourself to death. That's right. The callback for you. That's right. Very good. Uh, That's very good. <laughs> and we haven't trained. We to again back to your point. We haven't trained the upcoming generations of how to take that accountability on for themselves and not in this, Oh my God, do I have to, but enthusiastically to say, you know what? Oh, I get to be in charge of my own morality. I get to, you know, hold myself together. I get to be in charge and, 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 and flex my maximum agency. You know, people don't do that. They're looking for, oh, if we just got prayer back in school, everything will be okay. Oh, if we just had the right judges on the court, everything will be okay. And it's like, no, it's never going to be okay until we do the work for ourselves. So there's th- th- there are three strands there that I w- I'd like to peel apart if you've still okay. got a couple of minutes. No, um, no, go ahead, man. I'm having fun. Man. The, uh, so um, Nietzsche, the German thinker, from the, mm-hmm. the, the what you've laid out there is so Nietzschean in a lot of ways, but he, he raises this problem. And I think, I, I mean, that's why I call it the Nietzsche problem. Yeah. You know, we, in Zarathustra, he has, you know, um, Zarathustra is the prophet from Zoroastrianism. Yeah. Know, yeah. So yeah. The beginning, and he, so he's running around and he's grabbing people and he's, you know, God's dead, God's dead. Right. And it's this crazy yeah. mountain man and, and people laugh at it. And it's like, no, this guy's nuts. <laughs> right. Yeah. And he, but he's, he's been driven this way coming to this conclusion mm-hmm. and he goes, you know, God's dead and we killed him. Right. Yeah. Um, and so it wasn't, it's not, you know, people f- frequently misinterpret, I think misinterpret what he's getting at. He's terrified of the fact that there isn't one. Mm-hmm. And now we're left alone and have to mm-hmm. figure out a moral system based yeah. on something that's not from divine revelation. Mm-hmm. And so you see this in arguments from uh, like Brett Weinstein used to do this stuff. Um, I haven't mm-hmm. paid attention to him for in a while, but this, like me before I left Twitter, it's like a year and a half ago. He was really mm-hmm. Sam Harris has tried to this the new atheist guys try to get involved in this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. You have to find a biological justification for the moral system, right. but as we've already described, biology just wants to exist. It doesn't. <laughs> it, it as long as you continue to live, it doesn't matter how you get there. Yeah. So it's really difficult. Uh, Dawkins tries to get there. Some of the, you know, we should learn from biology so we don't replicate it in our moral system. Mm-hmm. But why not? There's not a good reason for it other than we don't want to see suffering. Well, why not? That's in the way. You yeah. know, and, and that's a big, so that's a, a, a problem. I don't have an answer for that. I think it's an intractable problem. Uh, if you want, like the point that Nietzsche is getting at, if, if you want to keep Christian uh, morality, which in essence mm-hmm. is what this is, um, yeah. The secular form is in liberalism, but it's that's mm-hmm. in essence what it is. But you you commit deicide. What's the foundation for keeping that that moral system? Why not yeah. Why not replace it with something that's way more brutal? And uh, that's Nietzsche's prediction: is that the 20th century yeah. is going to be a century of massive wars and mass killings. And you know he's doing mm-hmm. this in the 1880s, so mm-hmm. he was on the pulse of something. Right. And, uh, but then the future, it would be up to people to decide for themselves what their moral systems are, Yeah, but there but will see, never be peace because of it. It will see, I, I, so the, 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 the problem that I have <clears throat> is that a lot of these guys always try to center the conversation on the Judeo-Christian tradition. 
right? They're like, Certainly. oh, the Judeo-Christian tradition, it's the the the, the pinnacle of, of morality and so on, yep. whatever. And it's like, wait, you mean the cultures that basically colonized and enslaved the rest of the world? I was I was looking at YouTube and there was it was a video of all the countries that England, tiny island of, of England or Great Britain has invaded. And it was a map and a flag and it was basically everywhere everywhere yeah right yeah <laughs> you know and yep. and it's like so wait a minute so the most if this is the pinnacle of of morality the judeo-christian tradition why then have they systematically gone about colonizing and, and whatever and i don't want to get into the whole you know um you know relitigating the past that's not what it is that i'm saying what i'm saying is that they say that this is the tradition of highest morality and this was the beginning of it when we know, well, most everything that's in the Judeo-Christian tradition preceded it by thousands of years. And it's not like, you know, it's not some great mystery. You can do a Google search. It's it's all there. Hammurabi, you know, the Hammurabi code was, I believe, the first written you know, a, a code of ethics or rules, and it preceded the Bible and everyone in the Bible by thousands of years. Yeah, they talk know. about draconian. Yeah, um, well, some, yeah, but, you know, even the Bible, the very first uh, half of the Bible. Yeah, you sure. Know, oh, yeah. All Leviticus these different things. Rough, man. Yeah, and so, you know, we are just now beginning to wrestle with and tackle these issues of morality and, and different things. It's, it's an evolution, right? But the question of morality is divorced from any particular religious tradition, right? Because most of these religious traditions are just an overlay of the local culture that they have, you know, scaled and, and exported, yeah. right? This, um, is a, this is Nietzsche in action. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, the, the good, the the good and the bad part of it, and so I think, again, there's the lack of discipline and work of what is this really? If we strip away the stories and if we strip away all the dogma, and you can't eat this on that day and all that nonsense, and you can't sleep with this person, which we've like, please leave me alone. And if we get down to what is the goal that we're trying to get to. Right? How do we cultivate kind, generous, well-balanced individuals? Right? Um, that is a much more complex question. And so I think the complexity of that question inversely leads people to find these simplistic answers. Oh, we need more God in school. We need to pray more. We need, you know, more religion, these very simplistic things. And it's like, well, you fail to understand why people got rid of it in the first place. So that, okay, that's exactly, that's, man, that was what a wonderful segue. Thank you for that. Cause that's exactly, <laughs> that was the next strand that I wanted to pull at here. Okay. That um, because, well, like the word Judeo-Christian is a weird, mm -hmm. cause it basically comes out of an attempt to save Jude, to, to break the association between Judaism and socialist and because that was the trope in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. So as they come into, it emerges basically right at, at World War II or a little bit before it, it's an attempt to say, no, 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 they're not this weird for, it's to basically disconnect it from money and yeah. to, to, to try to make it less, an, less anti-Semitic. Right. And, but what it's led to is, and I think that the term is a very odd 
uh, it's there's a lot of tension there because Judaism. It's very, I mean, Judaism yeah, and Christianity very, are two different religions. They're not the yes, same thing. And it's very odd in that, um, you know, Christians have historically been uh-huh. the main antagonist for Jews. Right. Uh, up until you like know. the last century. Up until yeah. like the last, yeah, let's say half of, of, yeah. of the century. But, and it's, and it's evangelicals, right? They're, it's yeah. in almost in a way of saying we need to get all the Jews back together in Israel so the end of the world can come. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I, I, I do think to your point, it is a very odd pairing knowing that these two cultures or religious traditions have historically been mortal enemies. Well, and, but there's, there's this other part of it where it, what I think they mean, like I've read a couple of, I read Shapiro's, his supposed to be his intellectual book. And I, um, and uh, because he's one of those big proponents of this, right. And he, he's drawing from another tradition, a tradition that's deeply informed me in graduate school. So that's why I read Mm -hmm. the book and I was, I was disappointed, but the, uh, uh, I think what they're really getting at is they're talking about, they want the British tradition of rights and liberalism and they're just mm-hmm. using the religious link because liberalism in a certain sense is the secularized form of christian morality and though there's a another person there's a um she just well she's been dead 15 or 20 years her name was judith sklar who's a um academic at harvard who basically mm-hmm. argues that skepticism that toleration is the moral version of skepticism it's the application of skepticism to morality. And that's what mm. gives you toleration. And I'm like, man, I wish I had come up with that. That's so good because it's <laughs> right, so right. true. Yeah. But I think that's really what they're getting at. They just want a kind of pluralist notion. They just want themselves to be at the center of the pluralism. Yes. And uh, yes, you know, which is, uh, I mean, it's still true. Like 70, mm. almost 80% of the country identifies as Christian or in some theme or variation of it. And the other like 16% of them live according to the edicts, even if they don't go to church. <laughs> so, right. you know, it's like, I know there's a lot of hand wringing over this stuff that right. I don't particularly, it's probably something you should worry about 150 years from now when mm. that population is 40%. And now you're having a big debate on what's the central morality of the system. Yeah, well, that's true. But I, we won't be there for that. So the thing that 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 makes this all fall apart for me is that there are many countries that lack, mm-hmm. you know, a Judeo-Christian foundation True. or any large, you know, or, or being overtly religious in any way. And if you look at their measures of morality and, you know, let's say the common, you know, the, the common ways, they surpass us in many, many, many ways. Um, you look at a place like, you know, like the Netherlands, right? They're not religious at all, right? Um, but they don't have the, the teen pregnancy issues that we used to have. They don't have the drug issues that we used to have. They don't have the crime issues that, you know. Well, I think a couple of years ago, I read that they closed like their last major penitentiary because they didn't have enough people to fill it. And before then, they were actually importing prisoners in from one of the other Nordic countries, because, um, you know, you have to keep a certain amount of people in a facility to, you know, so that it doesn't get the lights on. Right? And, right. Yeah. Yeah. And it got to a point of where they just didn't have enough. And so, you know, but 
it's a very, you know, relatively peaceful. There's going to be crime everywhere. There's issues everywhere, sure. but a relatively peaceful society and they don't have religion at all. I think they are below 40%. Well, so, so when I, people say, yeah, go ahead. Well, well, I think that the counter argument is to that is they're still running on the fumes of Christendom since they sure. are part of it. My, sure. my, my response on those is mm-hmm. um, less on the religious one. Cause I, I think that that's, it's not something I've studied, so I don't get terribly comfortable with it. Um, yeah. I can dabble, but I, you know, I'm more interested on it on this political question because what they're again, I think what they're really wanting to get at is living in an, a, an enlightened capital E enlightenment liberal country, yeah, which is basically based on pluralism and toleration. Yeah, you know, like Christianity was able to suppress all of that for a thousand. I, I reiterate this all the time: the way we live is weird very weird that we okay. we we taught that we value toleration instead of conformity that we uh value dissent instead of uh forcing you into believing the way that we believe as the yes. majority whatever it is that we um value the individual over the community that mm-hmm. to say nothing of the the fact that like the last 20 years is the weirdest time to be alive ever um, you have a device that connects in real time to space and then back down to you in seconds. This is yeah. wizardry. Like yeah. this is absolutely bananas. And to like, I, this is why I, I spent a lot of time, like today I was lecturing on, um, on slavery, light yeah. and fluffy stuff. And, <laughs> you know, uh, right. But so much of what I have to do when I'm lecturing on these debates in the 19th mm-hmm. century is say they didn't think like us because they don't live like we do. There's no mm-hmm. refrigerators. There's no forty-hour work week. There's no right. In, there's no minimum wage. There's none of this stuff. The infant mortality rate's like four, five times what it is now, and right. the, the human experience, like broadly speaking, we are the exception. We yes. are at the very tail end of a of a two-tail system, right? Yes, yes. It is far more. If you were to pick an average like life for someone, you were a peasant living under some monarch that told you who God was. Like mm-hmm. that's been true of every existence that we don't do. That is so weird. Yeah. How do you preserve it? And on that front, I am sympathetic to a lot of these people who are hand wringing because mm-hmm. um, it may just be that it's chimerical. It just, it's an accident that it happened. And, so, or it's the con it's the result of a lot of things that people don't want to talk about, which are all these really nasty things that happened in the past. It, I think it's very neatly encapsulated by, I believe it was Benjamin Franklin, um, you know, democracy, if you can keep it or freedom, if you can keep it or whatever that it's old public, if you can keep it. Yep. Yeah. Republic, if you can keep it. Mm-hmm. I think that, that the, the, the animator in that statement, right. If you can keep it implies right. that there is work, there is a continued exactly investment in work Mm -hmm. and so going back to do we need religion no we don't need religion and you say okay the dutch they may not be religious but there is that foundation and it's like yeah sure it's a great book of philosophy it's a great way to study how did our four you know our forebearers deal with these same issues again callback of getting something to eat finding a mate, being kind. It's the same problems that humanity has always dealt with. And this is how they dealt with it to the best of their knowledge and ability here. And we can study the Bible the same way that you study, you know, uh, Aristotle, mm-hmm. you know, we sure. don't do oh, we do. Aristotle. Yep. 
mm-hmm. we don't deify Plato and Nietzsche and some people do, but we, we take that and say, okay, these are the people who have devoted time and energy to um, answering these fundamental questions of what does it mean to be human mm-hmm. and how do I keep being human in a room full of other humans, <laughs> right? right. Um, and, and, and not, you know, uh, you know, kill each other. And so, again, we can teach these things. We can cultivate these things, but it takes effort. You hear people say they need to take, you know, we need to teach civics in school again. And it's like, you know what? They've been teaching civics in school the same way they've always taught civics in school. It is a fundamental requirement to graduate high school in the United States, right? So they're teaching the same civics. So no, it's not a matter of we're not teaching civics anymore. Maybe people weren't paying attention or, but it's always being taught. I think the, the, the whole, the flaw is that we aren't, really investing in these things. There has been something, and I've seen it over the course of my life, um, and I, I recognized it when it was happening. It, the, 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 the plank was being pulled up, you know, behind generations. Um, I, I saw it, so certain things get passed and then, okay, that resource is no longer available anymore. Mm-hmm. That, you know, that conduit is no longer available anymore. And because people thought that they could have a wonderful, great society on the cheap. And that's a fundamental problem with Americans that we think we can have this great, wonderful life on the cheap. Well, that should be a low cost. And my wages should be high. It's like, well, your wages aren't going to be high if the cost is cheap on that thing because your salary is dependent a cost of goods yeah. for that cost, you exactly. know, for that thing. Yep. And so there's this disconnect. We haven't cultivated this idea of having to really invest and work for the things that we want. So whether it's the civics or the kindness and the religion and all these different things, where are we investing and rewarding people? studying these things, studying the philosophies, really having open, honest conversations, not you need to, you know, follow this dogma. And if you don't follow this dogma, you're an evil person. If you don't believe this, you're an evil person. It's like looking at this in some ways devoid of feeling from a very academic standpoint to say, what can we learn from this? And how do we take these lessons and apply them practically to the problems in life. Like people think that the way to, you know, they have an issue with abortion. So it's like, okay, well, hey, let's just, you know, outlaw abortions and everything is all good. And it's like, well, you didn't do anything really. You know, you, you in fact created other problems because there were existing problems that you just did not address at all. And there was one conduit, if you will, that was letting steam out of this thing that you put a cap on. So all you're doing is basically putting a cap on a boiler and it will explode eventually. And I think that's what we're seeing in society. We're seeing these explosions because people don't have these outlets to really explore these feelings and to get out their angst and their anxiety. And so it's exploding all over the place. Yep. I think that's right. And I, um, I particularly like the the reference to Franklin because um, in, in reference to teaching, 
you can't teach someone how to play an instrument by giving them a book on how to put your fingers on the keys. They have to play the instrument. Yeah. So if you want to teach civics, you have to act civically, mm-hmm. right? So you have to teach it by doing civics. You don't yeah. teach, you have to be civic. Yes. And, and I think that's where the gap is here, you know, um, because you can throw as much money at these things as you want, but it comes down to your character. Yeah. How are you treating and acting? And um, so that's perhaps that's where the investment needs to come from. It, it's less, um, we need less preachers and right. we, we need more people, you know, out painting walls and building houses and less preaching about needing walls and houses. Yeah, and, but, you know, in a capitalist system and, you know, nothing is going to move without money. Oh, sure. Sure. And, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, and so that, and money, with my finance background and I have a very, you know, slightly different way of thinking about money and currency is that, you know, it comes back to the investment, you know, and in this term it's a, it's a, it's a little investment and the incentives. It's like, we are not incentivizing people to do these things. And people say, yes, we are. We want this. We want that. And it's like, okay, show me the dollars. Right. Because that is how we measure value in this and it doesn't mean that it's it's value in the sense of this is better or worse not that type of value but simply you know in the in the in the context of the system and generating more of this currency these things have value and these things don't and we don't create value behind people investing back into society there is yeah. no value in that yeah how valuable are your values yeah we value we value data manipulation, right? I mean, you, and this, again, I was just lecturing on this stuff, or not this directly, mm-hmm. but on, on, on capitalism as sort of a system. Marx's criticism of capitalism is really good. Um, his solutions are really wonky, but as mm-hmm. a systems analyst, his is very, yeah. it's very telling because he understands like the point of capitalism is you start with capital to make a good, mm-hmm. to generate more capital. Yeah. Like the end goal of capitalism is capital. And yeah. Um, so, which means we start thinking of everything through that lens. Mm-hmm. And uh, because, and this is where I do think that um, there are differences in, again, like the way in the, the world is now is so weird because there's not that much diversity. And I don't mm-hmm. mean in terms of like sex and race and religion. I mean, in the way in which people ent- expect things in their lives, mm-hmm. um, like we, how many people are actually thinking I'm going to die in a giant blaze of glory because of my actions on the battlefield. We call them fanatics. Mm. Right. And they're condemned across the, but this would have been normal for a long time for most, especially for most young men. Right. Yeah. Like that's where most of the European um, people in Virginia set up. They were all these young, stupid kids who came in and 50% of them died every year, you Mm -hmm. know, from all the diseases. That's in essence, what drives African slavery because right. Africans wouldn't die from malaria, but all these stupid people from England would. So, right. but it was all glory hog today. That's, that is so weird to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's pretty true across most industrial cultures because there's this association with money and stability because markets right. hate nothing more than instability. Yes. And so what you need is a political system that's predictable. 
And because mm-hmm. that's what you make money off of, because you know what's going to happen three years from now, whatever. Like this yes. is where when people keep talking about taxes, set taxes for ten years and leave them alone. You'll have all kinds of prosperity, guys. Like yeah, <laughs> come on, you just have to, you know, whatever. But right. the uh, but the the issue sort of um, on this is Michael Sandel has this really wonderful book. Uh, he's an academic, but this isn't an academic mm-hmm. book. It's mm-hmm. called What Money Can't Buy. Yes. And it's a, it's not very long. It's like a hundred pages, which I know for mm-hmm. some people's like, this is nuts, but for an academic book, like that's a baby. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but it's really, cause he walks through, there have to be certain things we can't put value, a financial assessment to. Yeah. There have to be values that are beyond monetary evaluation. Otherwise yeah. the entire, we don't live in a culture. We live in a market. Yes. And um, no, who wants to, who wants to just identify themselves as a consumer? Like yeah. who wants to be reduced to that? So the book is really good for walking through that, but it raises these problems mm-hmm. because money is still the most rational way of interacting with each other um, because it's not, it's not personal. Yes. Um, right. So, so, you know, um, my, my idea, my, my feelings about, so I study finance. That's mm-hmm. my undergrad finance and economics. Um, and it was oh maybe 10 years later, I actually uh, started to read um, Adam Smith, Wealth of Nations, uh-huh. which is a long, dry oh, book. Man, you I drop that not... on your pet and it'll kill it. Yes. <laughs> you know, I don't book. actually, re- I recommend it and then I don't save yep. the time. But <clears throat> when he actually, when he actually explained um, his theory and it wasn't about money at all. Right. There's the, 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 the classic anecdote about um, the pen maker. And for those who don't know, um, you know, there was a pen maker and, you know, you have one person and they can make a pen. And let's say they can make one pen a day. If you had 10 people in your shop, they were making 10 pens a day. But you realize that if you had this one person just working on the springs and this other person working on the ink cartridge and this other per- person working on the casing, you can actually get 50 pins, same 10 people. You've just, you've just multiplied the the productivity. Mm -hmm. None of that has anything to do with money, but what that's, what that said to me, and this is sort of, this idea has been percolated in my head is that what you've really done is you've actually manipulated time. Mm -hmm. That's what you've really done. Mm -hmm. And that is sort of the, that is the emergent property in the universe, right? Time. Mm-hmm. And that is what that is what capitalism is actually doing. I mean, it's it is the destruction of inefficiency um, and utilizing resources in the most efficient manner. You get the same thing for less cost or resources. Mm-hmm. Time being the most valuable resource. Right. And so when I thought of it that way, and then money and currency and everything is just <clears throat> how we it's how we keep score it's how we balance it out right it's simply a tool of well okay you spent this much time on this much action and it has this impact and you know are all these different things and so we've come up with a system and we've called it money mm-hmm. and that's the most efficient way to share time between each other mm-hmm. the problem that we have is that we think that capitalism is generating money for us and it's not it's actually generating time and we're spending our time 
poorly. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I, like Locke calls that labor, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Adam and Smith falls in the same tradition. But mm-hmm. what is labor is the spending of time, right? How mm-hmm. much of your effort, your time are you putting into a thing? No, yeah. I think that's right. And money is basically um, a stockpile of prior effort that you can use for a future use. Yes. And um, so, and it just happens to be that apparently some people's time is far more valuable than others. Um, yeah. And- well, because they're, they're just that efficient, that they're that much more efficient at um, not only solving whatever needs now, but sort of creating an apparatus to deal with future problems. But it's so- actually, it is a very, it is a 3D or 4D, if you will. Because of time. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, because of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think about, you go back to the 90s. A lot of our issues, I think, today really span back to the 80s and the 90s of where you know we cut taxes and we did a bunch of things and a ton of efficiency came in. We changed um, manufacturing, you know, just in time manufacturing came in. We got super efficient. And then we got digital and that took the efficiency way over the, you know, over the moon. And we start to create um, greater trade and international trade, which is more efficiency, right? This is getting better. People aren't starving in the world. Everyone has an iPhone. We all have these material comforts and everything like that. And so this mass of wealth that we, that we generated, right? It was actually time, but what did we spend our time on? We spent it on, having fun and having sex and eating food and everything like that. Not realizing that the bill for the fact that we've shifted our economy, i.e. activities to, you know, we don't have the manufacturing happening here. We have the manufacturing happening in China, you know, and it's going to continue. We didn't take the time to then prepare ourselves for the future that we would find ourselves in in 2020 of raising the skill level, um, you know, devoting <clears throat> whatever trades or whatever skills that needed to be done domestically. We didn't invest them at the scale that we were offshoring, you know, jobs. And so what happened was all of this wealth was created and it was, you know, it was, it's created and it's been sitting in, the, in these pockets, Right. And you have the extreme wealthy like the Bezos and everything like that. And sure, a billionaire is great. Fine. And then someone like me, who's nowhere near that scale, but I live a pretty great life. And I have a lot of time to just sit and have podcast talks um, in the middle of the afternoon. Right. 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 Um, yeah. What do you think but, you are, an academic? <laughs> yeah. But but there how many millions of people who don't have the basic luxury of having a nice, polite conversation in the middle of the afternoon. Right. You know, how many people have actually lost their job, you know, over the course of this pandemic because they were, they didn't, they may not have realized it beforehand, but they were in the margins of society, you know, and that if the wind shifted at all, that they were going to be on, on, on the bad end of it. You know, and we're like, well, I don't know how, what are we supposed to do with all these people? And it's like, well, you know what? We have a, a wealth of time, money that we just simply haven't spent on making sure that the masses of people can, can keep up with the changes. 
and we're seeing more and more people. And I'm not saying that we need to go socialist. And I'm not even saying that we need to raise taxes and doing all these other different things. What I'm saying is people need to be more considerate of how they're spending their time and the impact of what they're spending today on what life will be like a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, a decade from now. Yep. And that the responsibility scales according to your opportunity. Yeah. And yeah, the uh, Andrew Carnegie has a piece on this uh, gospel. What a gospel of wealth. It's in the 1888, mm-hmm. I think is what it is, um, where he basically makes the Andrew Carnegie, right? I mean, Carnegie Steele, like one of the most yeah. wealthy men that's ever lived. Um, yeah. He gets, he, he argues in it that what you have to do, you have to incentivize people who are wealthy to give away their money. Mm-hmm. And he goes, you know, in essence, these people, if they could, they would take it with them when they died. Yeah. But they can't. Right. Mm -hmm. So you have to encourage them. Well, we would say incentivize, incentivize them to, to engage in philanthropy, Mm -hmm. which means you need to put a tax on them when they die. The state gets your money and nothing drives a rich person crazier than the government getting your money, you know, because they're going to waste it. You, you, and the other argument he is because you know how to make all that money, you understand how the market works. Yeah. And so you should be the one that can best allocate those resources out. Um, I'm not sure that's terribly healthy for a republic uh, to basically become uh, susceptible to the whims of 30 or 40 billionaires. Um, but well, one, of, one of the richest people who have lived in our time, Warren Buffett, would absolutely disagree with the fact that, you know, this money should be, you know, sort of entrenched in that in this you know, class, mm-hmm. because, you know, his thing is, he's smart enough to have accumulated all of that, which is really just a responsibility. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not this people. And that's the and that's the thing that people don't understand. Um, when they say Jeff Bezos has $130 billion, like, no, he doesn't. He has $130 billion worth of responsibility to the, <laughs> to the, to society, right, you to know, the public trust, right? It's a public trust. Right. Um, and we have to decide, well, what is in the public trust? An example that I give to people, we are now on the iPhone, what, 11, 12? Yeah, what, something like that. Yeah. So, and we got that with, you know, our current mix of society. But let's say we had a system that, you know, it taxed, you know, whomever or redistributed, you know, a certain percentage back into into society so that the bottom is not that far is not um relatively so divorced from the top right so let's say if this is the margin we're going to bring the bottom up a little bit right right and i'm like would life would society be that much worse if we were only on the iphone 9 but the bottom of society was a little bit higher because we redistributed that wealth versus having the iPhone 12 or wherever it is that we're right now. And that is really the difference. People's like, oh, well, the government doesn't know what to do with money or I don't, you know, you give it to the people and it's like, it's not that the government knows how to, it's not the government and it's not these businesses. There are people, right? We're all people doing things. The economy doesn't exist beyond what we call the aggregation of everyone's activity. Right. So what activity are we going to invest our time in? You know, do we want to, you know, get that next generation iPhone that much faster? 
or do we want to make sure that, you know what, we should make sure that everybody under the age of 18 has a meal? You yeah, know. Well, and that's one of the issues that, um, and this is where the Smith reference is a good one, because if you're going to read The Wealth of Nations, and again, keep it away from your pets if you want to keep them alive, <laughs> um, you have to read the, the theory of moral sentiments to go with it, mm-hmm. because markets without morality are as oppressive and destructive as anything else, because yeah. they're, they're, the point of them is, again, the efficient allocation of resources. It's the extraction mm-hmm. of time to produce goods stuff right yeah but if you don't take into consideration the human cost that falls outside of that market exchange which markets mm-hmm. are really bad at assessing externalities yes. um, that you, how do you how do you put a price on um life lost like oh yeah. if you're going to work in the coal mines you're only going to live to be 45 where otherwise you would have lived to be 80 how do you put a price number on that and yeah. they can't give a markets can't do that. Like that's in essence what the role of government is, is to give a price right. to externalities and markets. Right. And speaking of speaking of coal mines, and that's and that's one of these things that really bothers me about the way we talk about um, our economics and <clears throat> the systems that we live in. And people say, you know, what about the coal miners? And the coal miners need their coal mining job. And I'm like, throughout the majority of human existence working in the mines was the worst punishment that you could give to someone. Right. right. You know, Literally, it's like, yeah. oh yeah, we're going to take you, you know, you violated this, whatever you're going to work in the mines. Yeah, in the salt and it was, mine, right? Yeah. Literally. And it was, a, it was a death sentence. Yep. And so it seems so perverse and it's not to step on, you know, uh, uh, um, the work that people have done to build this nation. Um, and to make a living however they could in the mm-hmm. time. It's not that at all. People like to take and preserve, pervert my words, but what they're really doing is just projecting their own insecurities, making a very specific point here. Working in the mine is a terrible job, right? You go and actually talk to retired you know, miners and everything like that who have black lung and all this other stuff that we're now paying for. It's not the billionaires who own the, ta- who own the coal mining right. company. They don't pay it. It's the taxpayers who pay it. Yeah. So we've 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 consigned these people to terrible jobs and then we've given them this false sense of pride of like, you know, it's so it's so great how you've suffered for the greatness of America. We're going to keep all the riches over here in New York off of Park Avenue and and the Upper East Side and everything like that. But you coal miners, you can feel proud that you built America. Now go die. Right. Or take your, or take your opioids or or, or, or something. Well, they're self-medicating because of that gap. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. No. And, and yeah, there's, you can certainly recognize the dignity of labor, especially in those conditions when you don't have a way out. And that's been the biggest thing reading that like my fam, my dad was born in Virginia and my Mm -hmm. mom was born in Southern Tennessee. So we didn't really Mm -hmm. ever have coal miners, but we did have a lot of people like, my mom grew up with, she talks, they, they had an outhouse. They mm-hmm. had a dirt floor. Um, mm-hmm. They were in essence, one step above sharecropping. Yeah. And uh, which is a very different experience than I had. I grew up in the middle class. We had a swimming pool and stuff. I mean, it was mm-hmm. nuts. Like her life mm-hmm. is crazy compared to, you know, but there's a dignity in that. Mm-hmm. And you shouldn't ever discount the dignity in that, Absolutely but you shouldn't, not. but you shouldn't also condemn people to say that that's the only thing their life should have. Yeah. 
right? And I think that's the point yeah. you're sort of getting at. That That is absolutely the point. I was actually watching something um, a couple of months ago or maybe last year, and they were it was specifically about West Virginia and how there were a lot of people who, because it's not the taxes and the regulations, it's simply that capitalism has changed. We found something better and it's called natural gas. And we found solar and we have these other things. So coal is just not a viable thing anymore. And the Chinese came in and dumped billions of tons of steel in and just shot the yeah. price all the way down. So we don't need it to produce that yeah. kind of stuff anymore. You know? And, yeah, it's the market. And, yeah. And, and, and what you have seen in West Virginia are these, you know, old coal miners who have taken the time and put the effort in and they're getting into to, you know, to new fields. Yes, it's a pejorative learn to code, but you know what? Some of them have learned to code and coding is not that hard, you know? Um, depending on what it is, yeah. Depending on what it is, right? Depending on what um, it is. But, but you have these people who are developing a renaissance because they say this path is no longer there for me. And they've had people who actually care to come in and say, hey, you know what, this is a this is a new possibility for you. And you have these people who have taken it and they have transformed them. They have transformed themselves and they are starting to transform their, you know, their communities. And you ask them and they're like, you know what, I never thought I could do this a year ago, two years ago. I didn't think this. And then, you know they are shown and, and they are invested and not just with money and the resources, but with that encouragement that I was talking about earlier of, no, you can do it. And I'm going to stay here with you to help you along the way. And these people are like, yeah, man, I have a new lease on life. One of my, one of my buddies from Twitter, uh, Rick spent a good portion of his life in prison. Mm. Right. You know, um, he was in prison and he earned his way into prison, you know, and he didn't have any hopes and he didn't have dreams and he didn't have aspirations, but somewhere in his experience in prison, he found, you know, coding. And I'm, I'm using coding as a, I don't want people to get it up in arms to say, Oh, everyone has to come and be a data analyst because a, nah, I've, <laughs> Don't I don't you don't you I don't need no you competition and well there is no competition but that's another <laughs> that's my personal thing it's anything that you want to be finding that passion right mm -hmm. and he found the passion my friend Rick he found the passion and happened to be coding um, could have been cooking but he found it in coding and he was able to you know get out of prison or when he got out of prison he was able to continue to cultivate that passion and he's building his life. And he didn't, you know, you, you, you go back, you know, 10 years prior, 15, 20 years prior, that kid couldn't imagine the future that he's living right now. Um, he couldn't imagine himself, himself doing the things he's, he's coding, you know, uh, Apple uh, um, applications and, and different things like that. You know, that's cool. his, his particular niche. And so, you know, his younger self, maybe was, you know, didn't have the confidence, didn't have the wherewithal, all these different things of like, I'll never do that. But he found himself in a position, yes, it was desperate. And I don't advise anyone going to prison to find your passion. Yeah. But we are all in various prisons at some point in time. You know, you have to find that light and that passion to, you know, to, to, to steal you away from the, the pain and anxiety of your surrounding to, you know, 
guide you to a brighter future. And it sounds, you know, kind of hokey and people are like, oh, that sounds corny and that sounds whatever. And it's just like, so what? <laughs> it's true. It, you, you talk to people who have found themselves in position and in and, and one circumstance and they, you know, find themselves in a better one. And it is hokey. It is feel good, you know? And it's like, you know, what's the matter with that? Yeah, you know, no, I'm, I, not, I, yeah, I'm not entirely sure how different that is from I'm going to gauge in a revolution and street protest and overthrow the entire system and systemic injustice and all the rest of it. I'm not sure how that's not any less uh, aspirational and hokey in its messaging. Um, yeah. Except and for this actually, one is actually probably achievable. That's exactly <laughs> what it is. It's achievable and everyone will actually support you in, into doing it. I actually had a conversation some months ago. Before, uh, it might have been January. I was speaking with a libertarian and it was about taxes and different things. And, you know, taxation is theft. And, you know, they were talking about our freedoms and, and, and mm -hmm. different things. And I'm like, we have the highest level of debt that we've ever had. And that you speak about tyranny and everything. I'm like, there is no tyranny like debt. Debt mm -hmm. is a tyranny. Debt is the worst tyranny. Mm -hmm. And he brushed me off as, you know, some libertarians do. I have some great libertarian friends, so please don't, don't kill me on this. Um, but he, he kind of brushed me off. And you know what? It wasn't but a quarter later, you know, six months later, we're in the middle of COVID. Mm -hmm. And people have mortgages, which is a debt. And they have student loans, which is another debt, and cars, and, and, and all of these different things. And they don't have a job. And they're like, oh, my God, what is going to happen to my life? And it's like, yes, you thought you were free, but you were enslaved this whole time. Your time was no longer your time. It was devoted to servicing this debt, which is just paying and making other people rich, you know? And, and, and so when we talk about this capitalism and we talk about time and we talk about all of these things, it's like all of these things and passion is like all of these things are connected. Mm -hmm. They're all interconnected. And we, we, we're, we get so caught up into, as you were saying, the academics has sort of seeped into society and it's like, everyone is here. And then we're here and then we're here. Silent, and it's yep. like, yeah. And it's just like, you can't find the answer to this over here because you're looking here. It's actually over here. We have this very linear way of looking at things when we need to take a more holistic approach to all of this stuff. Um, yeah, man. No, I think, that, I think that's all right. I think that's all right. And um, the, do you know who's on your side on this is Thomas Jefferson. Um, yeah. <laughs> Jefferson writes a letter to James Madison where he, in essence, uh, complains about he was deeply in, I mean, he was up to his eyeballs in debt. One of the fundamental reasons why he has this mortal attachment to slavery, he couldn't afford mm. to, to end it. And right. even though he tried on uh, multiple occasions in his life to get yeah. slavery abolished, he couldn't personally do it because, you know, he was so in debt, he couldn't do it. And he hated it. Like, and you, yeah. you can see it clearly in his right. It doesn't absolve him of his hypocrisy, certainly. Right. But um, there's a financial reason. He was incentivized yeah. to keep them. But yeah. he writes to Madison complaining about this. And he's in essence says that the, every 19 years, so for him, once a generation, mm -hmm. you need to go back and reevaluate these debt laws. Because if not, you are guaranteeing that the future's time is paying mm -hmm. for your stupidity. And or not stupidity, right? But your excess. Yeah. And- uh, but the, the, there's a also a, a, a corresponding concern that Jefferson doesn't raise, but mm -hmm. 
like living in a modern, I don't, this is where I think sometimes it's difficult to look to historical um, analogs for this. Cause we're, yeah. again, we're living in such a weird time. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the way in which we go about generating wealth and all the rest of it now is so um, alien to us in a certain sense. It's very disconnected from you're not making stuff much anymore. It, it's a very abstract principle and it requires a lot of training across yeah. the board, which just wasn't true 40 years ago, 50 no. years ago. The level of abstraction is, is high. And if you can't master that, if you haven't been trained, my entire life is based on abstraction. Yeah, mine too. Just a yeah, different kind. It's a different kind. Right. And, um, if you, it's a very, very, as you're saying, it's a very interesting process training your, your, your way up to that. Um, it's hard. It's, you are reprogramming yourself to your mind to work in ways that it doesn't necessarily want to work. Um, or that's foreign. You, yeah. Yeah. Uncomfortable. And it, it's very, very uncomfortable. Um, and but if you don't, the penalties for that are increasingly more dire. Yep. And we haven't solved. We haven't solved that disconnect because, as you were saying, I mean, our financial system is what three hundred years old, if that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, realistically, you know? if that is probably like over a century, century. Well, actually, a century because they yeah. had to reset it after yeah. the depression because it mean, didn't yeah, work anymore. Right. I mean. Speaking of, you know, um, you know, the history of the Jubilee. Of the Jewish tradition of every seven years, that one? No, no, no. But so when monarchs, um, when monarchs uh, ascended the throne, they would have this Jubilee, Mm -hmm. right? Great big party celebrating the new monarch and everything like that. One of the first things that they would normally do is wipe out everyone's debt. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it is coming from the Jewish tradition, just applied differently. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep, yep. And so it was like, and because the monarchs understood, it's like, you know what? The best way to get everyone on my side, at least <laughs> this grace period, is to say, you know what? I'm going to do you the solid and, you know, whatever. But to your point, we don't have that anymore. Oh, there's a fundamental lack of grace, of mercy. And um, that's true across whether it's in economics, that's true whether mm-hmm. it's on social media, that's true. Uh, like the, the whole effort for self-esteem and all of these kinds of things is really an application of mercy to yourself, giving yourself yes. the ability to make mistakes. That's great, man. And um, that, that that's the really whole great. thing is like really a fundamental lack of mercy. How do you teach people to have that? Unless, mm-hmm. um, and I, I take my cue on this again from Aristotle, um, you know, that uh, you have to either have to have endured suffering. Mm-hmm. So people who are like in their middle age tend to have more mercy than people who are young because they've suffered some. You have to be educated to know how uh, unstable your life is. Not, not like mm-hmm. personality wise, but how easily it can be lost. Sure. Or uh, you have to be in, in some other way where you can experience the suffering to teach you how to have mercy for someone else. Mm-hmm. People who don't are either really young or they're really dumb. <laughs> and so, but how do we, uh, and this actually I think is a, an interesting, maybe this is where we sort of end off on this. Mm-hmm. Um, capitalism is, and again, Marx is really good on, it's one of the most revolutionary systems that's ever been made. But as it's doing so, to create requires destruction. 
So yes. it's never a comfortable process. Capitalism no. is tremendously dynamic. It has that built-in optimism, but you have to tear buildings down to build new ones. You have, yeah. But there's an, uh, an optimism that's part of that. But you also have to have the room to do it incorrectly sometimes. And the markets mm -hmm. don't really correct for that. If you overextend and oops, you're ruined. Yeah. We now use governments to bail out the wealthy when mm -hmm. they do these oopsies, you know, but yeah. we don't really apply those kinds of principles to everybody else. There's a fundamental lack of charity. Yeah. And um, so where I, I think it would probably be maybe good. We, we wrap up on this is uh, you know, the way in which you're approaching to do our ultimate callback here, the way that you approach people in your interactions with them may be a model we could say of applied mercy presuming that someone comes in with a blank condition, I can learn about you, but I give you yeah. the room to make a mistake without condemning you for it. Yeah. That's, yeah, I should come and talk to you more often because you you <laughs> put a nice bow on, I, I'm all over the place. I'm like, man, I like how Steven puts that. That's I'll, awesome. Man. I'll do what I, that's what I try, <laughs> try to do, man. Well, hey, thanks. This was, this was long, but this was terrific. I really- Brother, I really appreciate it. It is, it has been awesome. Man, great. Thanks so much. All right. Take care. Okay. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the conversations on this channel, please consider subscribing or supporting the channel more directly with the link in the description. And I hope you'll join me in the next episode.